sex work law exists for the most part, and this is globally, as a way to punish migrants, drug users, trans people, queer youth for the ways that they've chosen to survive in a hostile situation. And the state creates that hostile situation in the first place and then punishes them for coping. Because at the end of the day, people will migrate to do those kinds of jobs and find themselves in unsafe conditions because when you have desperation, when you have poverty, when you have economic marginalisation and people who don't speak English, you, you have vulnerability and that will always be exploited by people for profit. So you have to remove the vulnerability, you know? Hello. I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. This episode contains reference to violence against sex workers and rape and sexual assault. It doesn't contain graphic descriptions or personal accounts of those things, but it does have reference to them. I wanted to flag that up at the start. And now, here's the show. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Tony. Hello, Tony. Hi, hello. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? We met through a feminist friend, yep. I think, after a, an exhibition of art by sex workers last December that was on to commemorate International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers. I think we went in Starbucks. That's right, we did, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the second question that I ask everybody mm-hmm. is, what do you do now? I am a sex worker and sex worker rights activist. I spend my time arguing with people on the internet mainly about sex work and uh, <laughs> what's right and wrong in the world with regards to sex worker discourse and doing sex work itself. Right. So, I mean, I guess... I guess the first obvious question that people may not know the answer to, even mm-hmm. though it baffles me that they don't, because I'm involved in the in the dialogues and stuff that go on around it. What is sex work? Sex work is, is probably a better way to explain this. Sex workers refers to anybody who sells their sexual labour. They work in the sex industry as a performer, as, an, as, a, as a worker. So that's people who sell sex as escorts, people who work on the street, people who work in brothels. Uh, massage parlours, that is erotic uh, masseurs, uh, phone sex operators, webcam performers, people who work in porn, strippers, all of that stuff. If you sell your sexual labour, you're a sex worker. The term was coined by Carol Lee in 1978, I think, as a way for everyone who works in the sex trades to stand together, to conceal those who are criminalised, help them to do advocacy without exposing themselves as a person who's doing prostitution, which is risky, and just a nice way to like engender solidarity amongst all of those people I mentioned. But it can mean anything. That's right. that's the point of sex worker as a phrase. You don't have to fully divulge the details of your work when you employ the term. Yeah, it keeps it, yeah it keeps the specifics out of the out yes. of the discussion. Mm-hmm. And it also puts the emphasis on work, work. of course. That's the important bit. Mm-hmm. Right, and 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 I mean, I guess a lot of the time people question whether it is work yes um I don't but I mean what is your sort of standard response to somebody that does I guess yeah I mean of course it's highly contested that sex work is work and that is why the slogan of the movement is sex work is work um people people get really hung up on the sex part though they think that sex is special and different and something that can't be monetized and I think that's naive um if you earn a living from it and you support yourself through it it is work and uh that's the end of that, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, of course, not the end of that at all. No. It's a debate that rages on and on. Which is why you have to have 
rights activism. Yes, absolutely. People organising for their rights um, because we don't have uh, good working conditions is also a sign that it is indeed work. Sex worker rights movement is still pretty young. It's been going on since the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, and I, th- I feel like one of the things that what I, what I see when I look at the sex workers' rights uh, movement is that um, the battles that y- you guys are fighting are kind of battles that everybody in work uh, should and yes. could be fighting. And I, I kind of always feel that, that, you know, in many ways... What you, what you guys are doing sh- shows a kind of a, a, a way forwards for people that is that I would like us to follow rather than uh, rather than decide to judge you, what you guys choose to do with your lives. Sex, sex workers do do uh, grassroots organising for for workers' rights, better working conditions, really well. I mean, yeah. you know, when we look to uh, you know other workers' rights movements, uh, people like the uh, the Tres Casas campaign. Uh, met those those people at uh, an event recently. We had loads in common, you know. We're all we're all fighting for the same thing. That is to say, um, for for better working conditions, to have the right to just get on with it in peace, not be not be further marginalised by what we've chosen to do because we've chosen the best strategy like, that, that is available to us. And like we're not going to stop just because people disapprove, or we're going to try not to stop. You know, it's just surviving, isn't it? Right. And I mean, I guess there's there's specific battles that you guys have to fight that that, that general workers don't have to fight. Yes. So I guess like a, a, a word that often comes up around sex workers' rights is uh, stigma, mm. right? And and uh, yeah, I mean, you are someone who experiences stigma. Um, yeah. I mostly don't. I get a, I get a bit of stigma around mental health issues, but 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 generally, I'm I tick all the boxes of privilege, right? Mm. Um, what 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 um yeah what what is kind of what i don't know i'm trying to ask a question around stigma but i'm not quite sure how to phrase it i mean it's it's not the stigma that sex workers experience isn't completely unlike other kinds of stigma and it is and it is unique in a couple of other ways we call it whorephobia this the special kind of stigma that sex workers experience this idea that the sex we have permeates our entire bodies tarnishes our ability to understand the world diminishes our agency, means that we don't really make good choices. But in, in many ways, that's very similar to the stigma that drug users experience. You know, right. I see a lot of parallels. The way that a, a person's actions, and in, in my belief, the strategy that they've chosen to navigate their life with, which is what I believe that, you know, drug use is for many people. You know, right. it's a strategy for coping. Sex work is a strategy for, for navigating tricky times as well. But in choosing to do that, people are then... Uh, designated as lesser, unable to see clearly, in need of someone to step in and take control of their lives, and that's obviously super harmful. You see it with other stuff too, access to abortion. You know, in some yeah. some places, and increasingly more places, people who access abortion services are, are you know, to be infantilized. It's really, really problematic and toxic. And as far as I can see, in places where you have sex workers being treated like children. It's not hard to see how that leaks out into other areas of society too. Like, you know, it's a stigma. We need to have more solidarity amongst groups where stigma looks like infantilization. Like disabled people experience a similar thing around mental health too. And of course, there are people, let's not forget, who exist at the intersections of all of these different kinds right. of stigma. Um, um, people who use drugs who have mental health issues, 
who are disabled who are doing sex work. Right, and, and people of colour who do yeah. all of those things as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, just... it, the nature of the beast is very similar. And yeah, with sex work, it sometimes specifically relates to sex, but queer people know what that stigma feels like too. Right. This idea that, you know, you, you've, you've had a kind of sex and that sex is so powerful that it, it completely, like, colours everyone's view of you forever. You can't step outside of that stigma. It's obviously disgusting. One of the other slogans that uh, is used by, by, by the rights movement is rights not rescue rights not rescue yeah and rescue is uh, a thing that i guess it is part of that inf- infantilizing process it's it's people yeah. saying you need to be rescued rather than what do you need right yeah um, a rescue is a is a, a much i feel like um the prohibitionist movement that is to say people who campaign for an end to sex work or they want people to stop doing sex work yeah they call it exiting which is their idea of a neutral way of describing what we call rescuing and when you call it rescuing you realize what it really is it's ridiculous um i often describe it as like a tomorrow conversation like rescuing people exiting them out of doing something that you think is really unpleasant fine like that's obviously it's kind of like a pie in the sky ideal but what are you going to do about people who are selling sex now right. like we need better working conditions so that people can exit although i hate the term you know right. but you know there's always going to be someone who's who's deciding tonight tomorrow night the next night that they're in a bad situation they need to sell sex they need to be protected from the off they don't just need to be assisted away from that situation because it's not going to go away poverty won't go away right well are they exiting too yes yeah are they course. exiting to being you know even even poorer than they were before of that's course. not that's there are not no anywhere. realistic alternatives anywhere in the world for people who need the kind of money and security that sex work can offer immediately i mean it's like sex work is like no other kind of work for marginalized people especially women you can you can do it with little to no startup you can go out on the streets tonight if you need to if you're you know, if you've been kicked out by your family, uh, you're escaping an abusive situation at home. Sex work requires no startup. You know, most people have those skills already. Right, the, and, and the internet changes it in, a, in an even more. Sure, like, yeah. More, I mean, there's different kinds of sex work all, all, you know, all across across the board. But the fact is, it's never not going to be an effective strategy for those who are most in need. And for as long as that's the case, and I think it will be for a very long time, you cannot criminalize it in any way because it is necessarily some of the most vulnerable people in need of it and talking about exiting is like i said a, a tomorrow conversation and right what about today and and that's the thing um, one of the things maybe that will surprise people who are listening to this is that people often assume like the way that the media frames sex work is that there are some super privileged uh, sex workers <clears throat> who uh talk about how empowering it is yeah. and then there's <clears throat> like the rest of sex work which is awful and impossible and, and, yeah. and need need people need to be saved from <clears throat> and you're not making the argument that it's super empowering necessarily yeah um, yeah i think uh, that's a false obviously a false yeah. dichotomy that prohibitionists like to set up um about about this the myth of the happy empowered hooker and the disempowered exploited um victim And the useful thing about setting up a false dichotomy when you're trying to argue that sex work needs to be eradicated is that it allows you to discount the view of anyone because their views either fall under one category or the other. It's a a mechanism for silencing. You know, someone tries to speak and, oh, no, 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 you can't speak. You're too homeless, you're too addicted to drugs, you're too desperate, too too wounded by sex work someone else tries to speak and no 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 you're too privileged this this is a conversation about the really desperate people and 
in splitting people into those two groups, you actually effectively say no one knows the right answer and we have to look to the capital F feminist movement to hear the truth about these things and it's really toxic. And I would say, and, and I do say all the time, that we need to break down this way, this binary way of thinking about agency and power and wake up to the fact that nobody has 100%, no one is 100% agentic under capitalism. We cannot make a free choice. Right. If you're making a free choice to do sex work, you have to be a lottery winner and it has to just be a hobby and then it's not sex work, it's just sex. Yeah. And for the rest of us, we are, we are all... Again, you know, so many words have been co-opted and ruined by this kind of all this rhetoric. But most, I mean, everyone is forced to varying degrees, and everybody's being being exploited and will be exploited to varying degrees in work. And the question is, how can we mitigate exploitation? How can we make that experience easier? And that's not to say that there isn't a, a huge spectrum uh, like across which people do their sex work, and some people suffer far more. And we all need to work with those people and mitigate the worst harms. But yeah, splitting people up into categories is absolutely right. unhelpful. Everyone has a, an enormous range of experiences and lots of sex workers never even get a chance to speak about them, you know? Like sex workers who have experienced sexual violence, who are survivors of rape, um, find it very difficult to talk honestly about that stuff because they're worried that those experiences will be uh, co-opted by, you know the enemy and, right. and used to demonstrate why actually sex work is terrible. And, you know, I'm actually, I sometimes feel my analysis of sex work is kind of radical feminist. I, I do think sometimes the sex industry is utterly, is an abhorrent place, you know. It is the site of exploitation, it's a site, a site of capitalism, it's a site of patriarchy, of white supremacy, of ableism and all these things, just like a lot of workplaces, right. you know. It's ugly, but you can't punish the people who are trying to scrape a living off the bottom of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, that, that, that's the thing that, I mean, people seem to, to, to misunderstand, or, I mean, from my view, misunderstand, I mean, the, the, in order to help people at at the bottom, in inverted commas, the people who are struggling the The most, right, that's why these arguments exist, you you know, but it's, these arguments aren't for treating sex workers' work aren't about protecting people who already have privilege. They're about, I mean, they are a bit, but they're mostly about helping mm. people who, who don't have any any other means to, yeah. to, to get to get their own rights. To, to, yeah. to, to a major mistake that we, we hear from prohibitionists, and I, I refuse to call them abolitionists because I just think that is, they, they love the term because it, it rings bells uh, in association with slavery abolition and that's what they like to think of themselves as abolishing a kind of slavery but they're prohibitionists just like drug prohibitionists and they cause harm with the stuff they say but they love to identify um, the pro-sex worker argument and the pro-decriminalization argument as being an argument that benefits only pimps that helps men to profit and helps men to have sex you know we're we're often called like like we're, we're only working towards like helping Johns have orgasms and like you know that's what we're fighting for and that's a very like it's obviously problematic because it centers men in a conversation that's about you know a feminist uh, intersectional understanding of oppression but it's also wrong I mean decriminalization like the empirical data all points to the worker experiencing less violence and oppression in the workplace because of decrim and they just willfully don't see that because it, it doesn't chime with their 
Uh, well, it, I mean, it does. I mean, they, they want what's best for women, or so they say. We just disagree on how best to achieve that. Right, that's the interesting thing to me, because I, I, the way I see it is it doesn't matter what side of this debate you're on. Mm. If you listen to the evidence, you should come to the same conclusions. Yeah. Of like, if you want safety for women, which I assume that everybody should want, I know that many don't, mm. but you know that that's the way to get that is 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 through getting rights for women rather than rather than uh, rescuing them and moving them around yeah. these kind of I think ways. the ingredients of this this face off that we have in the movement with uh, with feminist prohibitionists that like boils down to their fear of their fear of sex their, their uneasiness about sex their sex negative analysis uh, meaning that they're uncomfortable at the idea of like the sex that happens between sex workers and their clients. They find it uh, a site of unequal power relationships. You know, they're worried about rape culture, which is, you know, all, all very legit. In, 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 in conjunction with what I was explaining earlier about the way that sex workers are diminished, they're thought not to have enough agency to be able to speak clearly about their experiences, they're not to be trusted, then they don't really know what they need. When you add those two things together... And then you add in a couple of other things like we're vectors of disease, we threat, we, we pose a threat to the family unit, you know, all kinds of like you know silly things in at the edge about us. I can see why people just want to like make make the whole sex industry disappear. People are really uncomfortable at the idea of like men having sex with sex workers, especially people's husbands and you know boyfriends. But ultimately, the problem would be eradicated if people would just let sex workers lead the discussion. And what really inhibits progress in this area is when sex workers are not allowed to be at the forefront of law reform and decision making. So it serves their interests to sort of keep us down. But New Zealand, which decriminalised sex work uh, about a decade ago, they got there because sex workers were asked to help create that new law. And only sex workers can really, really know what they need. And they need to, they need to have their voices amplified and the voices of people who either have never worked in the sex trades or worked in it a long time ago, those voices need to be given less weight because they are necessarily ignorant. Right. There, I said it. I mean, there's two kind of there's two there's two countries, I guess, that are in in terms of the, this debate, like worth like looking at. Mm. I mean, I was speaking last last night actually to somebody who is from New Zealand who mm. then went to Sweden uh, right. before she moved to London and she was and um, we were talking about sex work. She's not a sex worker but she's uh-huh. a feminist but whatever. Um and she was saying, you know, that she'd noticed such a change in New Zealand through de- de- decriminalization that it, it she all she saw in in a way was was positive results of that. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it's more complicated than that from just somebody from outside the the industry looking but yeah, yeah. but still and then when she moved to, to Sweden she was shocked at the lies that she now then realized were being told about the Swedish model and that yeah. she was seeing a lot more like there was a lot she you know it was really noticeable uh, curb crawling or whatever you want to call it was was yeah. everywhere there um, and, and you know that's not how anybody frames this thing that is known as the Swedish or the Nordic model yeah. Um, yeah, well they how, tell they tell the world it's been effective at, you know you know reducing the amount of prostitution what does that even mean like so you have you know like less visible people people you've driven further and further from services from like data collection from outreach services sweden has a lot to answer for in the the way it presents the results of the the sex work law there they they've been known to write their you know their reports on the matter differently in english and swedish like in swedish internally they'll admit that the law hasn't really worked and then they'll present a slightly different image because it's so important to sweden that they're seen as a feminist place who have this fantastic law to export 
anyone who knows anything about sex work politics or, or drug user politics knows that sex work is a seriously fucked up place to be if you are an undesirable and sex workers and drug users and migrants and people of colour right. are undesirable. Migrants is another big part of mm. it in Sweden. Like the, the laws that have come into place around sex work seem to very much go hand in hand with their anti-immigration Absolutely. policies. Yeah, they, they don't want to enable people, migrants, surviving because they don't want migrants. And that is often the case, not just in Sweden, it's the case here. Right. You know, sex work law exists for the most part, and this is globally, as a way to punish migrants, drug users, trans people, queer youth, for the ways that they've chosen to survive in a hostile situation. And the state creates that hostile situation in the first place and then punishes them for coping. Right, and they're always used as the... the like So kind of going back to what you were saying about people feeling that ma- their, their marriages are threatened or whatever, mm. like what, has, what seems to happen there is that sex workers are getting blamed for the oh, lack yeah. of uh, ethics of the men in question. Yeah. Like if, 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 a, if a man is uh, not keeping everybody informed and is, is lying oh, to somebody... Don't give two things. Right, right, but I mean, like blame him. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't blame yeah. the sex workers that he, he, that he goes to. And the same, and the same thing happens when sex workers experience violence at the hands of... Uh, of clients themselves you know every everyone knows the trope of you know the battered whore who gets you know abused by clients at work and for some reason she always comes worse off she looks she looks worse after that conversation has been had than the man who abused her he right. remains anonymous and you know people want to blame the sex worker and that's obviously victim blaming elsewhere in feminist rhetoric that would be unacceptable but for some reason with sex workers it's all right to insist upon the fact that if she just didn't do this job if she exited and got herself into a different situation she wouldn't suffer anymore right well no she should have the right to work in the way that she's decided or they've decided it's not you know only women in sex work and we we should be pinning the blame on on police who right. are violent towards sex workers and clients, but not insisting that we discuss why it is that men pay for sex, which is, of course, the the lens through which this conversation is forever had. Right. You know, rather than why is it that sex workers are working? You know, yeah. I mean, and, and, I mean, there's so many. Like, there, it's always the same questions as well. Like, I mean, I feel like we, we if if you were interested in why clients. Um, go to sex workers or whatever you, you might also ask the question why don't as many women go uh, uh, use sex workers yeah, like, yeah, why do yeah. you always have to frame it through men in, in that, mm. in that debate, I mean like know? it would be an interesting conversation to have if there wasn't if se- if it was all just you know if we had our our rights and sex yeah. work was an industry like plumbing right. we could have a very interesting conversation much like the one that people have about why is it that women hate booking male plumbers and why is it that all female plumbing services are thriving you know it's interesting but like it wouldn't be appropriate if uh, you know female plumbers were getting like killed right it's an after conversation it's an after conversation and right now we need to and feminists everywhere need to centre the discussion around harm reduction uh, in what ways is is sex work well overdue for a, you know a redo in terms of the law and how are we going to protect vulnerable people and this insistence that we keep talking about the men and like you know how they're getting their rocks off is disgusting I think you know when Amnesty International recently announced their intentions to come to a decision on having a stance on sex work the backlash from the feminist movement was astonishing they were yeah. outraged that Amnesty yeah, would even yeah, yeah. would even consider 
um, supporting decriminalisation and they were insistent that it was a sign that Amnesty was just fighting for the rights of punters, helping, um, you know, the language was obviously obscene and really gross and there was even a counter-campaign going around that changed the Amnesty logo into a leaking cock surrounded by barbed wire and I was just like, is this feminism really? Like we're literally putting cocks on logos instead of talking about people who are literally getting killed. I mean, in France recently, they trialled a Swedish model. They brought it in and it was later overturned by the Senate. But for a short while, sex workers in France were dealing with the criminalisation of their clients. And what this actually looked like on the ground was sex workers anticipating a drop in business because a lot of people would be too nervous to come and pay for their services anymore. So these women dropped their prices, these people dropped their prices started offering unsafe services to compete with one another to maintain the income that they needed, because let's be honest, an end in demand doesn't change the fact that people need to pay their rent. So they started offering unsafe services. They moved themselves further back into like secluded wooded areas. So women who'd previously been working on the curb would take their clients into secluded areas to protect them from the police, because it's not in their interest to get their own clients arrested. And what happened to these women out in the woods? You know, they're getting raped and beaten and killed. Mm doing less safe services for less money. They need to see more clients to make the same amount of money. It doesn't work. I mean, at the end of the day, curbing demand does absolutely nothing for the economic needs that meant someone was getting into sex work for the first place. And they're not going to appreciate having someone try to remove the last strategy that they had or the strategy that they decided was best for them. And, and these feminists are wasting their time photoshopping cocks into the Amnesty logo and I just... You know, it infuriates me and it infuriates all sex worker advocates everywhere that we we can't speak loudly enough over the din of people insisting the conversation stays talking around men, right. you know? <clears throat> We're trying to be heard and all people can think about is sex. How are we getting fucked? You know, like... You know, what's the sex we're having? How many holds? How many clients have we seen today? Right. And it's distasteful and completely irrelevant. And you know? reducing women to holes anyway, that seems yeah. to be something that happens a lot like within well, media feminism. And uh, I'm yeah. sure it, it's even worse in the actual like rescue industry or whatever. The rescue industry likes to talk about sex workers. In su- I mean, I've been, I went to a conference once where people applauded someone who stood up and gave a speech about how being a sex worker is like being a toilet and people just jizz into you. And yeah. um, my friend on Twitter recently said if it's misogynist if it's said by a man it's still misogynist if it's said by a woman to a sex worker yeah. and that's the thing about whorephobia it is it's misogyny like and then some you know it's turbo misogyny aimed at more vulnerable people more sexualized bodies it's it's super gross it's kind of like people have got given the permission to, to really like get mm. you know they don't get to be mean all of the rest of the sure. areas so they sex like, workers yeah, let's do it now sex workers definitely um, still pick up some of the misogyny that's no longer permitted to direct at like respectable women and you know you can see that happening in loads of cultural stuff and the trope of the dead hooker is no joke I right. mean it's everywhere and it must be really frustrating for you and for other sex workers just being within culture I, like I keep the more like since I've become more and more like aware of sex work and sex workers' rights, it's, it's impossible to watch a TV program without mm, cringing. God. It's impossible to hear a stand-up routine without cringing, cringing. at a moment. And we're so, and we're such good fodder for comedy. That's the problem. Like you know, we are. You know, it works with a lot of marginalised identities in comedy stuff. I was watching Friends the other day, and Joey has this line where he's like, I, I, he's playing a game of poker, and he says, "I fold like a cheap hooker that got hit in the stomach by a." Pimp, a fat pimp with sores on his face and I was just like you know 
you know, the, you're talking about a people who have no face and no voice, and that's right. why it's funny. But like, when you know sex workers, it just it just becomes like a damning indictment of how much violence happens to a certain group, and no one gives a shit. Right. It's really upsetting. I mean, with things like that, if you replace the word hooker with the word woman yeah, or the word sure. person, then mm. I think people should very quickly be able to yeah. see how horrific these things are. Difficult to see sex workers as people in a society that just like never lets us speak, and it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to give ourselves a voice because people are obviously very concerned about privacy. You know, you don't get sex worker spokespeople. I wouldn't be able to do this interview with you if my face was included because I have privacy concerns and I'm, I'm like, I have, you know, an enormous amount of privilege compared to some people who are worried that they'll be disowned by their families or, or you know, their partners will leave them or they'll lose their children. You know, this is a reality. In Sweden, a, a year and a half ago, a sex worker activist called Petite Jasmine, she was like a well-known face in the movement, did a lot of advocacy. She went through a breakup with an abusive partner and the state took her children away from her because her sex work was deemed to be enough of a sign that she couldn't look after herself just by virtue of being a sex worker. The state decided that she wasn't a fit mother, that she she didn't know what she... All that stuff I was talking to you about before, infantilization of a, of a people. And her abusive partner killed her, mm. you know, during the process of this, you know, acrimonious battle for custody. And like, why was that? Why did the state allow that situation to arise just because they didn't think that she was... Just because she was a sex worker, she wasn't able to look after her own kids. So, of course, people, they see that and they, you know, it's everywhere in society, so they don't... They don't speak out. They aren't vocal, and it's and that's a self-perpetuating cycle of structural violence. Really, that, that sex workers are too afraid to speak, so someone speaks for us, and and loads of bad shit happens. Yeah, I mean, it's so ingrained in culture. I mean, I I, I don't think I was aware of homophobia uh, until I was I, I guess I uh, eighteen when I came came into contact with somebody who was using very homophobic phrases and then mm. that sort of like shocked me because I I grew up with I guess progressive parents social worker for a mother like mm. the, the attitude towards sex workers we would have used the wrong word yeah. to describe sex workers but we would have considered them to be people in in my childhood yeah. home growing up and so I thought I thought that was the moment when when I first came into contact with homophobia but I've recently been going back over my life a lot because um, I'm making for better or worse I'm making a sort of feminist uh, show aimed at men about getting uh, how the patriarchy hurts men too and uh-huh. how we gotta uh, right. uh, yeah that sort of shit um, and so I was going back over my life and I suddenly realised that when I was 12 mm. in a like youth theatre group right the song that was being sung like uh, to uh, for everyone to bond this is like 12 year old boys and girls and up to you know 12 to 18 yeah. is inc- was incredibly homophobic like oh, yeah. I mean I, I don't even you know I wouldn't I wouldn't repeat it but now since I've done that it's become my it's it's my earworm now so oh it's no like but, I'm the same I mean I looked I looked through some um, Halloween pictures a couple of years ago and realized that there was a girl in the background of a picture I was standing who'd come to Halloween dressed as a dead hooker with a bullet hole in her forehead and I was doing sex work at the time, but it was prior to becoming like political about sex work. I was right. just doing sex work in secret all by myself, you know, like not telling anyone. And I was, I was before getting politicised around sex work, I didn't even think that that was weird or bad. And right. I was a hooker. I mean, and I, you know, sex work, hatred of sex workers is so everywhere. I mean, I was watching Arrested Development and there's jokes all the way through. Tina Fey has like built her career on 
putting down sex workers and we just don't see it and it's everywhere but there are there's other kinds of whorephobia too i mean it isn't just whorephobia isn't just dead hooker jokes and right. saying that we're disgusting no, no, it, it's no, also it's much milder stuff much milder stuff and it, it also you know just like racism isn't an overt uh like damnation of people of color but it is also the more insidious stuff about like silencing cultural appropriation you know uh denying the existence of white supremacy all of those things are are racist as fuck and so like that some of the stuff we come up against as advocates uh, about law reform people people campaigning for the swedish model is phobia too whether or not they try to claim that they're acting in the best interests of women whether or not they say anything like the swedish model would decriminalize the women and only criminalize the men that's nonsense it's it's phobia to say that we don't know what's best for ourselves and that is everywhere. I mean. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the, another thing that listeners who aren't necessarily as as immersed in in these like issues might not know is, I mean, one of the things people assume is that sex work is illegal in this country, mm. and it's and it's not, right? Yeah. But it but there are lots of laws that are designed to to completely fuck things up, right? For sex workers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an issue of a lot of confusion for people. But yeah, sex work selling sex. And often, you know, sex, it's confusing to talk about sex work and prostitution interchangeably. But selling sex is legal, um, but it is illegal to work together in a collective. Two, two sex workers is a brothel and not allowed. Um, and it, you can be evicted if your landlord finds out you're doing sex work. It's not a criminal offence, but obviously like very preca- makes working very precarious for people. It's illegal to solicit. And those things mean that it's very hard to do sex work without breaking the law at some stage. And if you are working on the street or you're you're marginalized in any other ways it's very very easy to come into contact with police if you're a migrant you know one of some at some point or another you're going to be brought into contact with the police and they're going to fuck your life up in another way so we campaign for decriminalization which would mean a removal of those laws the brothel keeping law the laws that mean we have to work alone the laws that mean that people are given asbos when they work outside because being given an asbo is a one-way ticket to finding it very difficult to get any other kind of job that isn't sex work um, so a very ineffective way of helping people leave the business if that's something that they want what's often the biggest point of confusion though is when people get confused between legalizing the sex industry and decriminalizing us those two things are so different but the terms are used interchangeably sometimes with ignorance and sometimes on purpose by people who want to oppose us in our arguments legalization or you know a state regulated prostitution is basically the creation of extra laws around sex work that regulate us, that submit us to checks, make us apply for licenses. What it really does is actually create two groups, the legal sex workers and the illegal sex workers. And you can imagine the kind of people that populate the illegal group. It's the yeah. people most vulnerable. Um, migrants, victims of domestic abuse, queer youth, uh, drug users, uh, the working class, people who are not able to comply with the other strict standards that require you know, that the state requires. So you wind up with the haves and the have-nots, and it's basically criminalisation, which is violent. Yeah. You know, people need to be able to do sex work safely. So we are emphatic in our campaigning for decrim and not legalisation, and yet people love to, to say to us, "Hey, sex worker rights movement, you're talking bullshit because legalisation actually doesn't work," and we're like. Yes, we know, you know, the evidence from Netherlands and Germany does show that human rights are compromised under legalisation and that isn't what we want. We're forever trying to disambiguate between the two and it is, you know, a lifetime's work, apparently. But then I often think that prohibitionists 
you know, they willfully mix up the two because it serves their ideology right. to demonstrate that legalisation doesn't work, and it doesn't. We no. don't want that. We want less laws, not more laws. And I guess another thing that they're always conflating is what the term that the people use is trafficking, right? The sex worker rights movement often finds itself forced into a position where we have to say, well, sex work and trafficking are totally different things because we're so desperate to get workers' rights and we want to disambiguate ourselves from rape and exploitation, all those horrible things. But the truth is, again, like we were talking earlier about the false dichotomy, that's a false dichotomy too. Trafficking, the word has lost all meaning now, is, is a term, is a catch-all term used to describe people being abused in commercial sex. And sometimes the, that does overlap with sex workers, as we understand it politically. Trafficking means migrants paying agents to move them across seas to do sex work. They may have very little knowledge about what's waiting for them on the side. They may have some knowledge. They may have total knowledge. Some of them are being exploited by these agents. You know, uh, Some of them are, are paying a huge debt to be moved across borders that they have to pay off by doing sex work, and that's obviously exploitative. But they knew they, they were getting into that, just like other people know they're getting into exploitative arrangements with other kinds of workers in other industries. Some people are abducted across borders and forced to sell sex and that is rape and we obviously wholeheartedly condemn that and there are already laws against that but the problem is that anti-trafficking rhetoric and sex work prohibition scoops up a whole lot of people who are migrating across borders to work in the sex trades and some of them are getting exploited at the other end and it's making it it makes it harder for those people to seek help when they're getting exploited in sex work and sometimes it's redefining exploitation for, I mean, you know, anti-sex work rhetoric says all sex work is exploitation. So how is it that someone who arrives from Eastern Europe find themselves here, they thought that they were going to be doing a bit of light escort work, they find themselves like, you know, locked in a brothel seeing 20 clients a day. If you categorise the whole of prostitution as abuse, how's that person going to access help like, that has a nuanced understanding of, like, you know, sexual labour? More to the point, how are migrants who are here without a visa going to be able to access help when they're worried that they're going to be deported? Right. A client of mine, one of the other sex workers that he sees is a Thai woman who arrived here a few years ago, is overstaying her visa on purpose, working like, you know, working her tits off so she can go home in five years' time with loads of savings. She cannot come into access, she doesn't want to come into contact with any police officers while she's here, obviously she's worried about getting deported. And when she decides to go home... When she's like stopped at the airport, she'll probably be like, oh yeah, someone forced me to stay here and now I'm leaving. So that obviously spikes the data enormously. Lots of people will claim to have been trafficked when they get rounded up by the cops as well. So you can see already, I mean, I could talk about that for a long time, but the trafficking conversation is huge. I mean, and complicated and nuanced. And there's a whole lot of people, many of whom don't even speak English, who are waiting to have their voices heard in that conversation. Right. And... And we need to listen really carefully to the millions and millions of experiences. And we need to listen with an ear that takes into account the violence of borders and the numerous ways in which a person can experience economic marginalisation. Not just say that anyone who's moved here from abroad to do sex work has been trafficked, which is the current definition and is super problematic. Right. And it also, I mean, and again, there are different kinds of labour that people migrate to do. And so yeah, yeah. By, by making it all about sex again, yeah, yeah. we're really unnuancing and, and, and not listening to a real large... I always like to bring up, um, you know, the, the drowning at Morecambe Bay. Right. That uh, was near where I, I went to university. Yeah. 20-odd um, 
uh, Chinese workers drowned. Yeah. Um, cockle picking. Cockle picking. And like, it's a, one of a, a huge amount of incidents incidences of violence uh, in industries where people are being forced to work in unsafe conditions. The answer isn't, of course, to criminalise the purchase of seafood. That doesn't do anything to help people who find themselves in those situations. The answer is to get right up inside those industries and support the workers, enable them to fight collectively for better working conditions. We cannot just apply a blanket ban to purchasing jam for god's sake there's right. so many people being exploited in fruit picking right. and it doesn't doesn't help to say well that's nasty isn't it let's just get rid of jam how it is tasteful let's pretend this doesn't happen because at the end of the day people will migrate to do those kinds of jobs and find themselves in unsafe conditions because when you have desperation when you have poverty when you have economic marginalization and people who don't speak English, you, you have vulnerability and that will always be exploited by people for profit. So you have to remove the vulnerability. You know, people are vulnerable because of visas, because they don't have visas when they come here and they want papers. That opens up the door to being exploited by travel agents or traffickers. And women are economically marginalized all over the world. And that creates a vulnerability for getting exploited by partners sexually. Sexual exploitation in prostitution is rife. We need to empower people to step out of that. This bullshit approach by ending demand does nothing. You know, people still are going to find that the UK is an attractive prospect to migrate to and want to sell sex here. Yeah, you know? and and what you and the organization that you're kind of a member of is... SWU, just, mm-hmm. yeah. Sex Worker Open University. And what, what, what is that? What do they do? What, what are they about? So Sex Worker Open University is a collective founded and run by current and former sex workers mostly. We have some academics and other allies like to get involved, but we're mainly sex workers. We put on events for other sex workers, so the weekly breakfast drop-ins, free breakfast drop-ins for people working in uh, the sex industry. We do classes, skill sharing workshops and stuff. So that's stuff we do for the community. Oh, we have a, a helpline as well. It's staffed by sex workers for sex workers to call or email or text if they you know, need support in a listening space. We also do stuff for the public, so public advocacy, education. We do panel events. We go and give speeches. We do sensitivity training for people in the medical profession, you know, campaigning. We're working with the ECP now on a big campaign for, for decrim and to ward off the Swedish model. All that kind of stuff. We, we stick our necks in absolutely everywhere. ECP is English Collective of Prostitutes. English right? Collective of Prostitutes, yeah. We work together on some stuff along with another organisation called Crosstalk. We're some of the only sex worker-led organisations in the UK. There's a lot of organisations that are operating as service providers to sex workers, you know, doing health outreach and stuff, but they're not staffed by sex workers and that's right. the key difference. And we believe that sex worker-led organisations have to be at the heart of a change around the conversation, really. Right, and, and sex worker-led organisations are a kind of... It's an international movement as well. Like yeah. The internet, I guess, has helped everybody to link up. Yes, um, and the global network of sex work projects, nswp.org, has links to, yeah, sex worker-led organisations all over the world who do amazing work. And, you know, the, the people who do the best by sex workers are obviously going to be sex workers themselves because they understand what's needed. And, like, I think this conversation we've been having today you know if anything just hints it's the tip of the iceberg there's right. so much nuance because sex work is something that's done by so many different kinds of people so how on earth can people who've never worked in, I mean even I couldn't possibly understand the experiences of all of my fellow sex workers that's why we all have to have a chance to to speak and not be spoken for by policymakers and feminists and you know the patriarchy itself 
Right. I, I'm, I'm sort of like slightly aware that, I mean, because of the fact that this conversation has been mostly about uh, your life as a sex worker or your, or your or, or issues around sex work, that mm. I'm defining you not by, not by sex, but I'm defining you by sex work. Mm. Um, but obviously you're much more, more than that. You're, you're a human being with all sorts yeah, of sure. interests and stuff. <laughs> I mean, um, I guess that's... To, to, to even talk about your your life around uh, sex work is it is it kind of tricky area for you to go into on on mic I guess but I mean, well yeah I mean uh, <laughs> I do I mean you say I'm so much more than sex work and sex worker activism and I'm thinking God do I do anything else uh, <laughs> uh, it does take up a lot of my time but you know it, it's well, it's yeah, important like a, to like me a job. yeah I mean my, I also um, I, I I have a degree in uh, documentary photography and I'm working on a documentary project about sex workers. Um, which is kind of on a hiatus at the moment because I feel like my training in in photojournalism has led me to have this really voyeuristic style and I sort of looking at my own pictures of sex workers and I was like fuck it's hard to photograph sex workers and not feel like a voyeur even when mm. I am one because the the codes the visual codes I've been taught lend themselves so much to photographing women you know who are, who are facing away from the camera, like overly sexualized imagery. So I'm really trying to like reteach myself how to how to uh, to learn a new visual language so I can document sex work in a way that is different from the dominant paradigm around like all of those clichés around sex work. So that's what I'm trying to work on when I'm not talking about sex work. But I realize that that is also about sex work too. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Yeah. arguing with arguing the toss with uh, all and sundry about the same topic so yeah you might say I'm pretty one dimensional basically well, I don't know I don't know about that I mean that's the thing there's a lot of nuance within that and like mm. you know everybody I probably spend the majority of my life doing you know things within the same area yeah, um, sure. for sure to, to, to me from the outside it seems that I mean as I've alluded to a couple of times that I feel like the internet's quite an important development for activism and for, for hearing voices that we don't hear because yeah. it people can take some agent like you know if you're following sex workers on twitter you're hearing about people's lives not not just their politics yeah. you know you're hearing about straight their... from the whore's mouth right. i like to say yeah and 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 it's and and we, but not as not in the same kind of it's not a voyeuristic experience in the same way i mean maybe some people are experiencing it that way mm-hmm. i find it to be a sort of experience of like yeah the sex workers i follow have got the same kind of complaints the same kind of mm-hmm. like make the same kind of mistakes and like have the same kind of issues that i have you know yeah, and, yeah. and so I feel like that's a, a good way of of getting people to be understanding of the humanity, I guess. Of, the humanity, of, of, and it, go, it goes um, for other groups too. I mean, um, right. like other people who never have had the chance to, to speak because they've, they've been caricatured so much in society. In my Twitter timeline, I've got homeless tweeters, uh, right. tweeters who are um, drug users, yeah, me too. Uh, sex workers... Black Twitter is amazing. Uh, there's yeah. so much. There's so much rich variety out there, and I try to. I have a joke. I try to make as little of my uh, social media timeline, uh, you know, concerning men as possible because we've heard from them. The world, you know, the media of the world is geared up to tell you as much as possible about the male experience, the male perspective, the male gaze, and Twitter is just an amazing hub of the other, and right. I, I like that. It's. Uh, it's it's good to it's good to be a part of it and to bring that perspective to the masses hopefully yeah. and also recognize that you know, there's a, there is uh, the other the flip side of that is there's a reason that I'm here able to talk to you now then there's a reason that even in in subcultures and movements like sex worker rights that the most privileged people 
get the most airtime and it's important to recognize that we have to fight really hard not to make the face of sex work middle class white cis which you know all applies to me and we you know we have to remember who isn't who isn't able to get their voice heard the internet as a medium is great but who isn't able to have access to that medium uh, who isn't able to speak in the same language as all of us you know like so that's something i always try and bear in mind like whenever whenever i'm thinking about advocacy and speaking speaking for a whole movement is obviously impossible so many people standing standing behind me and i have to sort of remember remember that right i mean from what you said as well like you you deciding to do sex work was separate from you becoming politically conscious very much so work. yeah uh-huh um i mean what what led you to becoming politically conscious i guess well it was so i started doing sex work i started stripping when i was about 19 and then i, like, I led into full service work so like escorting and, and bdsm stuff and i've worked for employers i've worked in a pro dungeon and parlors and then i started working independently and i got i started to get really politicized when i joined twitter basically i joined twitter because i felt like the isolation was getting so much like i didn't tell anyone i was doing sex work for a long time not my partner not my family it was, yeah, my mental health was like really suffering and I think I just wanted to reach out. But it only takes three minutes to politicise someone who experiences that much marginalisation mm. because as soon as you start to realise why stuff happens, you just get outraged. So it dawned on me really fucking fast, like the reason that my life was so shit was because I had to lie all the time about what I was doing and I, was, I had experienced some violence at work and I don't know, I just, it, it was like suddenly a light had gone on. I was like, fucking hell, like this is a silly situation and I didn't, I didn't really bring it on myself and it shouldn't have to be like this. And finding solidarity with other sex workers just was like lighting a match and now, now I'm a belligerent, I'm a belligerent sex worker far and now I just never shut up about it. But there was a time that I wouldn't, yeah, like I said, I wouldn't have been able to identify stigma. I think for a long time I was doing sex work and I genuinely believed that stigma against sex workers was right I guess I, th- I think I thought that I was just a bad bad woman mm. I know it's, it really goes deep I mean uh, I used to work for a manager who she'd and she'd never done sex work herself and she'd make jokes she'd be like oh you look like a I'd come into the lounge of the brothel where I was working she'd be like you look like a cheap hooker in that take it off and I never thought that kind of comment was you know out of line and like I said I went to that Halloween party and someone was dressed as a dead hooker and I just don't remember being outraged by it and that's how much we and that's you know like women internalize misogynist jokes mm. to the point where they make them right where they perpetuate misogyny against other people and i think i genuinely felt that homophobia was part of the natural order of the world and so i didn't see it and so i was subject to lots of lots of nasty stuff and i think that's the case for lots i mean obviously with politicization becomes a painful awareness of stuff i mean it's also like a burden to take on when you suddenly realize just how fucked up everything is but i wouldn't go back to that i wouldn't go back now to you know a time when i didn't realize that actually it you know there's lots of fucked up shit happening to sex workers and it doesn't have to be like that i wouldn't i wouldn't want to go back to that ignorance again and i guess sex work is like a thing where you kind of if you're to have relationships with with other people in the world it's something that you have to kind of come out about yeah but it's also something that's more difficult to come out about than your sexuality or whatever because it's it's, because it's illegal. Just well yeah and it's there's legality all around it as well like so it's yeah. it's and stick and different kinds of stigma it's it's um like finding your place in the world when you have something as controversial in your closet as sex work is really hard for sex workers um forming relationships with people who are going to be okay with it but not also 
fetishize it. Mm. Sex workers don't want to be with people who just think it's hot that they're a sex worker, right. uh, which is obviously uh, a big problem. And, you know, like I said, I was in, I didn't tell my partner or my family that I was doing sex work for like three years. And he, he would have been horrified and left me if he knew. And he still doesn't know to this day. Hope you're not listening. Uh, but these days, and I'm, I'm really lucky now to have found myself in a, a different kind of community where I do feel able to be mostly out about my work, out to my uh, partner and my family know and they're actually okay with it. But then I'm enormously privileged in that respect. And mm. a lot of people aren't able to be in that position and that's really heartbreaking. And that's what Sui tries to do with these breakfasts is provide a space for people who never talk to anyone else about what they're doing. You can at least come along and talk to other sex workers not least because it's good for your well-being and your mental health, but also not telling anyone you're doing sex work is really dangerous because it's something that we do. We work alone, you know. People will see clients alone, and if no one knows where you are, well, look at what happened in Ipswich, you know. Right. We need to have togetherness, uh, not just politically, but practically. Togetherness is, is safety. Yeah, that. I mean, it's really, really sad that a lot of sex workers don't feel like they can tell a single soul. It's, it's, it's tragic. And is there anything obvious that I've not asked you? Is there anything that you are frustrated that you never get to say in interviews? I guess when you do interviews. Um, I I guess uh, it's not a frustration, but something I'm always pleased to be asked is around language. Because I think a lot of of the things that hold people back around talking about sex work is that they're not sure what language to use. Right. Or, Or they don't, they they feel sure that it's okay to say prostitute and they don't stop for a second to think, what is in what way is the language I use stigmatizing and dehumanizing? Sex workers love not to be described um, as whores or as hookers. And, I mean, we definitely reclaim some of those words for ourselves. And it's you know I refuse to believe that that is beyond the understanding of people. But people who aren't sex workers should refrain from using any terms other than sex worker or person who sells sex. Right. Words like prostitute are loaded. And in certain contexts, like in the US and other places where it's criminalised, it's literally tantamount to calling someone a criminal, not a neutral term. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's the word that took me the longest to, to, to discover. I mean, it was only when I started listening directly to prostitutes. Uh, there we go. <laughs> I mean, uh, some, some people workers. do politically identify as prostitutes, <laughs> and I have been, I've been known to say prostitute when you need, to be, when you need the specificity. Right. And I can understand that people you know policy makers and stuff they want to be talking about prostitution and like they but mean prostitutes not sex workers person who sells sex seems to be a good person who sells sex or full that. service sex worker right, full sex. because it, it, you know full service sex worker applies to anyone who is having full sex for money it can be brothel worker street worker indoor worker whatever who person who's escorting but I often find that actually if people need to feel the need to say prostitute they can usually get away with identifying what they mean in the context, you know? Brothel worker would also work. Street worker, mm. not street walker. But yeah, like, and there's, there's, there's lots of information about like, language sensitivity around sex work on the internet. We've recently, the movement has been campaigning to get Associated Press to change their style book to replace prostitute with sex worker. Um, so yeah, language is important. I mean, I read an article yesterday uh, on the same topic, but about um, the language around drugs. And how we inadvertently stigmatise drug use with languages like getting clean or addict, you know, or junkie. It's, it's, it's really insidious and knee-jerk for a lot of us. And we all have to retrain our way of thinking about this stuff. Right. Um, and I guess that's the thing. Like, as, uh, what, what, I, what I, I guess one of the things people get worried about mm-hmm. is that, like, they're going to mess up. Like, once they start realising sure, that sure. they've got to change things. But then there's the other side of things of, like, people who have not yet 
come into contact with these arguments sure. being judged as if they have and they've decided to ignore them so there's like these kind of complicated things around language where like I, I've used the wrong language in life people have mm-hmm. told me it's wrong I've yeah. changed the way that I that I use that language for example cis is a good example of that I didn't yeah. really know about that and then trans people talk to me uh, it's not their place to do so I'm not expecting them to but luckily they educated me when mm-hmm. I used it wrong on yeah. Twitter and that was really beneficial to, to my understanding yeah. of things but then there's people who don't know about that stuff yet it's co- it's complicated treating people like if we're going to collectively learn mm. you know it's about how we do that without kind of alienating each other I guess yeah I mean it it osmosis in I mean this is the thing that this problem disappears when sex workers become louder and their voices become magnified and then all of a sudden you just I mean like there must have been a tipping point when most people in society referred to queer community as homosexuals and they just ended up stopping because you have LGBTQ people whose voices are heard everywhere and all of a sudden they become people and you start to adopt the same rhetoric and language that they use and it's right. invisible. But I'm sure for a long time, LGBT rights campaigners had to work really hard to stop people saying homosexual. I mean, it's so stigmatising. Yeah. It refers specifically to the sex they have and not like the rich complexities of an entire people. And when people say prostitute, they may or may not mean to, but they are inadvertently like censoring their rhetoric around the illegality and yeah it's, I mean it's not a neutral term in the states right in the states and it, it took me a while to word that out but like to understand that but I fully I, yeah. I mean I'm not I mean arguing. sex work is kind of a young term you've got the ECP the English Collective of Prostitutes and you know they're obviously using it right there in their name but they're an old organisation and you'll notice that when they do advocacy these days they talk about sex workers yeah we need a new word really I mean full service sex worker is obviously less convenient and prostitution itself I'm okay with people referring to that when they specifically want to talk about prostitutes but you have to ask why did non-sex workers want to talk about prostitutes so much why don't you let us talk about it you know right and then <laughs> I, I guess the the other thing around language though is that it, it, it's not just about changing the language it's about changing the systems and structures around it because yeah. i mean that's the, the the funny thing that happens with language is like you know people use the right terms but then they start meaning the wrong the yeah. wrong connotations like i think this happens in schools with like special needs yeah. uh, it's replaced other offensive terms but now people use that word yeah. with the same stigma like it attached to that word so yeah. I, think it's I, I think it'd be hard to do that with yeah. sex work because it it basically encapsulates those who would wish to further stigmatize us it's difficult to stigmatize someone when you're literally calling them a worker that's why it's people like, hate it yeah that's why people hate yeah. using it it's, it's difficult to designate sex work as you know disgusting abject um like low life activity when you're calling it work i mean it's literally that's why sex workers chose What's why Carol Lee coined the term, yeah. um, and why we're so keen to get it adopted, and why people really don't want to. You know, prostituted woman is the preferred <sighs> term for those who would like to be sympathetic to us, whilst at the same time acknowledging what we actually do with our bodies, and that's totally gross. I mean, really gross. And it's the same, you know, same kind of thing around the language about rape. You know, victim versus survivor, survivor right. um, and it's powerful. I think that you know that stuff really does shift the tone of a conversation. And calling someone a sex worker. It's useful for, when I see someone calling sex work sex work. I know that at least the work has begun. I can have dialogue with that person. If they refuse to stop saying prostitute, then I duck out because, you know, how can you how can you have conversation? How can you have dialogue with someone who refuses to even agree what language to use? I mean, and I mean, I guess it's like you know, you, if you fuck up, you say the wrong word, then you 
say sorry and you change it like oh, in sure. that moment like that's the thing people seem to think that changing their language is going to mean that they they're, they're not allowed to be a human being and make mistakes but, sure. they, but nobody's going to expect it's that not the most in, important thing either right. you know like if I'm talking right, to right, if, right. If, you know, if I had a private chat with David Cameron and I got him to agree that actually persecution and oppression of people who work in the sex trades is abhorrent and he's going to decriminalise the sex trade. If he stood up and make, gave a press release saying, you know, rights for prostitutes, I'm all for protecting them, I'd be super happy. I right. mean, you know, we are prostitutes, whatevs. Like, the important thing is policy, but language is important too. Yeah. And it's, um, but I, you know, I'm not going to berate someone about the choice of words, it's more what they're saying. Yeah. But you did ask what what do I also no, no, people no. ask about and language no, language is key, you know. It helps sex workers move through the should have asked, so it helps right. it helps sex workers move through the world and feel more like they're being listened to. When I'm invited to speak and somebody um somebody says hooker or I'm just like, Oh god, you know, I don't feel safe now, right. I feel like So those I mean, those were the words that I did that, that I knew were offensive about women. Mm. Like like those were the words like I never really would have ever used those like the the, the H word and the W word, mm. right? Um, but yeah, it was the the one that t- that I did not realise um, mm. was was yeah was was the one I'm not going to say again because I've already <laughs> accidentally. Oh, said don't it. worry. Um, which is that's typical of me. Whenever I'm worried about saying a word, I always end up saying it. It's, it's like when you see a pile of dog shit and you're like, don't step in the dog shit. Don't <laughs> yeah, step yeah, the shit yeah. and just walk through the dog shit. Right. <laughs> exactly. The last question that I ask people mm. is uh, do you have anything to plug so I guess we sort of covered some of the things that you might but, le- but where, where can people find some of these resources I guess so you can follow us through on Twitter and Facebook uh, we're sexworkou on Twitter and that's where we also release uh, updates about our breakfast meets um, if sex workers want to find out to come along to that and we tweet articles and stuff we don't really get into very much debate on there but there's a lot of sex workers on Twitter if that's uh, what you're keen to tune into and we are at swoo.org online where we publish other interesting things and we've got a very lively blog and in terms of plugging stuff nothing else much really just uh, you know the, the helpline uh, confide uh, is, is really important and you can find information about that on our Twitter account too and that's it really just hoping that people just stay tuned and, and link sex worker rights into their their intersectionality and their feminism and keep, keep thinking about the conversation but keep listening rather than talking is important which is I guess what your listeners are doing already because <laughs> yeah. they can't talk back right no sure I mean and, yeah that's that's what I like about uh, listening to podcasts is that it means that I have to listen yeah which is something that I've in fact, made a show to force myself to learn how to do. So. Wow, yeah, God, I'm, I'm thinking that that's a really great idea. It's, it's a very different medium, I have to say, to talking in a different, another public space where you have to take questions at the end, and questions are the site of a lot of aggro for me because, yeah, it invariably is the time when someone puts up their hand to say, but actually, aren't you all forced yeah. and all that stuff? So, yeah, it's really nice to say my piece and... and feel like I'm in a safe space here to get it all off my chest well, so thank um, you for having me yeah um, well thank you for having having me because we're in your safe space um, <laughs> and uh, yeah the, the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience goodbye audience you've, you've been really great <laughs> bye everybody so that was episode 197 of Getting Better Acquainted. Two more episodes to go and then it's Getting Better Acquainted 200 season where I'm celebrating 200 episodes with five conversations, five interviews 
where I am the subject and other people are the hosts. So you're going to get five different parallel universe, bizarro world versions of what this show might be, where the people interviewing me are much more interesting than I am. And we get to see whether I am a consistent character. And really, it's a celebration of conversation, of listening, of listening to each other, of communication, which is what this show tries like I try to be about. And whilst I'm throwing in additional information, the first stand-up tragedy of 2015 is happening at the Hackney Attic on Saturday, the 28th of February. It's a variety night where people cry until they laugh and laugh until they cry. So basically we get a load of performers, comedians, spoken word artists, musicians, storytellers, and more to stand up on stage and do some tragedy and this night is going to be tragic winter so the tragedy is going to be about wintry topic the doors open at 7:30. the performances end around about 10:30. dancing goes on as long as we can handle it it's five pounds in advance seven pounds on the door if you want to try before you buy check out the stand-up tragedy podcast which you can find anywhere where podcasts go to hang out on the internet, which absolutely includes iTunes. <laughs>